Welcome to the Transparency Project on the Inside Lens Network with programming dedicated to bringing attention to unsolved homicides and suspicious deaths. If you have a question or comment for today's guest, please call in at 646-478-0982. My name is Denny Griffin and my co-host is Delilah Jones of ImaginePublicity.com. Hi, Delilah. Hey, Denny. And I just want to give a quick plug for the Inside Lens Network. This is a, a whole collection of podcasts with a lot of issue-oriented programming. And when I say a whole lot, I'm talking about almost 700 episodes. So there's something for everyone to listen to. And just as a reminder that some of the podcasts on the Inside Lens Network highlight criminal cases, and some are still open investigations. Um, Our intent on these podcasts is to allow families to present information for consideration by listeners. Our podcasts and hosts in no way represent our guests. We don't claim to solve cases, nor do we wish to jeopardize any open investigations. Our guests present their own information, and while we might suggest resources or assistance, we're not liable for what their subsequent actions might be. Um, Denny, I I don't see our guest for today calling in. Um, How would you like to proceed? Well, let's talk a little bit about the the case we we plan to uh, cover today and hopefully uh, the guest will join us shortly. Uh, Brenda Lacombe was just 19 years old when her badly beaten and decomposing body was found off Interstate 495 in Harvard, Massachusetts in 1982. And no one has been charged with her killing in the 36 years since. The Worcester County District Attorney's unresolved case squad continues to investigate the little woman's killing And now Lacombe's niece is trying to help by raising money to have her aunt's body exhumed so a new autopsy and DNA testing can be conducted. Lacey Kearns, 32, of Lowell, wasn't born yet when her aunt died, but she has spent years investigating her aunt's killing and believes the test could provide new evidence. And we are awaiting uh, Lacey. Hopefully she'll be joining us to discuss her aunt's case. In the meantime, I'd like to... uh, talk a little bit about some of the upcoming cases we have. We are actually booked now uh, right through August, right through mid-August, and uh, with the cases, these cold cases and unsolved uh, cases, suspicious death cases, and sprinkled in with those uh, those shows are going to be some special shows. Uh, We're going to have guests that our uh, investigators and, and look at these cold cases, make recommendations. Uh, they do an analysis of the case of what has happened to it so far, and then uh, make recommendations to family members about what they can do to try to move the case forward. So I'm really excited about all these things we have going. And in fact, tomorrow, we are going to have Larry Young on, and Larry, uh, Larry's daughter Molly was killed. Uh, it's an undetermined uh, manner of death at this point uh, with a gunshot wound to her head, and uh, it's an Illinois case. And Larry uh, a- attempted to file a wrongful death lawsuit, found out he was past the statute of limitations, and he has been fighting now since his daughter's, uh, Molly's death, to try to get to the bottom of what happened to her. And as part of those efforts, he's not only had extensive dealings with the various police agencies and governmental agencies trying to get records, but he he moved forward with the legislation and got... Uh, the Illinois legislature interested, and they ended up passing what they call Molly's Law. And I know that a lot of our listeners and members of the Transparency Project are in situations similar to where Larry found himself uh, with with trying to Well, you know, Denny, that that brings brings me to a thought about... 
you know, we've highlighted a lot of cases over the years and a lot of family members have appeared. And it's amazing to me the resolve that these people have and how how much progress they have made in, you know, maybe not in their own cases, but it comes to a point in a lot of their there are situations where, okay, I can put this on the back burner for now, but if I push forward and, and just like you say in legislation or other areas, then the next person or the next family that comes along with this type of an episode won't have to go through it like I did. And I, I just really commend these families for, you know, having the courage and the bravery to step beyond their own um, situation in their own case to to help others that way. Yeah, it it is, and it you know, thankfully most people don't have to deal with this type of situation. Uh, it, but when when they get thrown into it through no fault of their own, all of a sudden they get the phone call or the knock on the door saying so and so has been killed or so and so is uh, deceased. And suddenly they find themselves in totally uncharted waters, have no clue really to begin with what to do, uh, what actions to take, uh, how they can help protect themselves and and their rights, uh, for example, in knowing the statute of limitations on these uh, wrongful death suits is one example. And to stick with it, I mean, you got to, now, people undergoing, obviously, a state of grief, and yet they have to make decisions. And if you can have someone who has been there and done that, such as Larry Young uh, tomorrow, who are willing to share their experiences and possibly help uh, people who who have suddenly found themselves in this uh, terrible, terrible situation, terrible spot, to uh, to overcome or to deal with, and in the case for tomorrow for the legislation, I I've thought a lot about that since I've spoken and uh, with Larry, and it seems to me that. Legislation, and of course, unfortunately, you have to go state by state, basically. It's not a federal thing. Um, but getting legislation passed that, in Raleigh's law, for example, extends the statute of limitations to, to file the wrongful death lawsuits. Uh, and it's how he did it, what he had to do to get this done. I think is going because I, I don't know myself. I've never gone this far with him as, as we plan to go tomorrow, but to uh, to find out what steps he had to take and what obstacles he had to overcome to get this law passed maybe can be the pilot, if you will, for for other people to uh, to go that same route in their state and try to get uh, something done that helps the victims, the the survivors of the victims who get victimized twice. They get victimized by the initial event. And then again, when they go through these struggles, trying to get information and trying to deal with the system and trying to get uh, justice. So I'm, I'm very excited about the willingness on the part of Larry and others to help. And I hope... Uh, these experiences that are shared will lead to helping other people uh, uh, get some resolution in their cases as well. Oh, absolutely. I I totally agree with you. Uh, I almost called you Larry. Denny. (laughs) Sorry about that. I have Larry on the mind. Well, you know, and another, what you brought up earlier about some of the other things that we have planned and interspersed in between a lot of the cases that we're highlighting, I, we did a, a 
a podcast last week with uh, Dr. Ellen Graytack of Parabon Nano Labs, and this it's it sounds very complicated, but she is so good about putting everything into layman's terms so that we can all understand how this process and how this tool can be used. And it was an amazing show. I mean, we've, we've had her on in the past and this is kind of an update on some things that, that have come about since the the first interview that we did with her. So I encourage everybody to look up that, that particular um, show. It was, it was quite an honor to, um, you know, to speak with her again. And it, it just, came about that a person that I've been, well, you've interviewed her, Maggie Zingman, whose daughter, Brittany um, Phillips, was murdered in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and it's still an open case. And Maggie has taken it upon herself to uh, have her car wrapped with all of the information about Brittany's um, case and tip numbers and all kinds of things. And she has traveled thousands and thousands and thousands of miles with this car um, to meet with media people in, in each town that she goes to and also to speak with law enforcement. And just recently, she was able to have her uh, law enforcement department get the um, DNA to Parabon to get that snapshot. So now she has a picture of the possible suspect. So these are the kind of things, the tools that are available out there. A lot of times people don't know how to um, make use of them or how they can get with their detective or, or their law enforcement agency and suggest and show them how this can work and and how it can further the investigation so we 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 talked about all of that what what a family can do what a law enforcement agency can do and how to get it funded so that's that was kind of the important part is who's going to pay for this and it's you know it's it's not cheap but it's not really expensive either but in a in a case like like um Maggie's it, it's really given her a great tool to use as she travels all around the country. Yeah, that's you know a lot of these families uh, turn out to be very innovative when it comes to to trying to get resolution for these uh, for their particular cases, and they not only are resourceful. In some cases, I think they even surprise themselves with with uh, some of the ideas and, and some of, of their efforts. And it's, I think I've mentioned this probably many times in the past, but it's that sticking with it that that is uh, obviously a critical factor in, in ever getting any answers. Uh, for example, uh, a case we know very well is Phyllis Cook, and she's going on 50 years, 50 years of fighting to get answers. I mean, it's amazing. It's just, uh, it's, but you know, with nope, the advent of social media, off. that's been, oh, well, hopefully they will call back in. I just meant to hit that yes. button. Um, <laughs> darn. <laughs> But you know, along the lines of what you were talking about, it is amazing to me how how can someone do this for 50 years and still not have answers? Um, it's just beyond my comprehension, and I'm sure you know the audience agrees that that that's too long to wait for justice. And and it's she's not the only one out there. I mean, there's so many that it's it's mind-boggling. And you know, going yes, back and... going back to one of the issues that we've we've highlighted a lot over the years is that um many of these cases are are originally ruled a suicide. And I think we had a show not too long ago about um why this happens, why it 
we think it happens. We don't know for sure, but we think because of the fact that if they rule the case a suicide, the case can be closed and, you know, their investigator's job is done. And one one thing that we have seen is the the increase in the numbers of suicide as opposed to the numbers in homicides. Now, Denny, just putting two and two together, do you think there might be a correlation there, or am I barking up a <laughs> funky tree here? No, I, I think you're right spot on. Uh, and, you, you know, we could, I'm sure, do a show, and we probably should sometime. Uh, some of the uh, cases, maybe a panel discussion, uh, three or four people who have gone down the suicide ruling uh, road. And some of the uh, people I've uh, been in contact with that, that have been there, the evidence seems so overwhelming that the death was not a suicide. Uh, and the the closing out of the case, some cases very quickly, so quickly that the officer arrives on the scene and before he even looks at the crime scene itself, says, oh, it looks like suicide. I mean, and and they they will tell the coroner or medical examiner, it looks like suicide to me, doc, or whatever, and uh, that's the way the death certificate comes out. So, uh it, it, it's just incredible some of these stories they so seem to be so blatant and and yet they happen and you know talking about it's a convenient way and a quick way to to clear a case but uh, is it the right way right well um one of your cohorts on the inside winds network donna gore on on her show shattered lives recently did an interview with dr scott bond who addressed that he he basically was addressing the fact of um, you know that the suicide rate has risen so so much in the past ten years or or maybe even more than that whatever years he's done the research on um, but uh, he he took that into consideration but didn't really expound on it very much as far but I just find it I just find it so amazing in the in just the small handful of cases that we've highlighted with this possibility if if we can get this many there must be hundreds maybe thousands more out there and oh, I, absolutely we're just I'd like to ask our caller say. is this Lacey yes <laughs> hi Lacey <laughs> Hi, Delilah. Hey, Denny. Good morning. Good morning. I'm sorry. I wasn't Uh, sure if you guys were calling me or I was calling you. Okay. Well, we were glad to see you show up on the switchboard. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, We've already done the introduction, uh, Lacey, to, to introduce the case. So if it's okay with you, I'd like to get right into some questions. Oh, of course. Absolutely. Okay. Now, you were not born yet when your aunt died. I'm just trying to figure out, you know, what what prompted you to decide to try to get to the bottom of, uh, of her death and... You know the effort. I'm, I, I know from experience that these things take tremendous effort and patience. So, uh, could you explain to us, you know, what made you decide to actually take on something like this? Sure. Um, so I started doing some research on um, ancestry a couple of years ago, and I got a letter from someone in California um, that my aunt had wrote probably six months before she disappeared. Um, And I I found that to be really interesting. I showed my mom and everything. And so I've always known about my aunt's case growing up. And um, I started to look a little more into it. And I started to notice all these things that didn't add up. 
and from there, I basically, um, that just continued. And I just wanted to um, help, I guess, because I started to find things that my family never heard about or weren't aware of at the time. Um, now, are you getting support from your other family members, or do they are they behind you in this and what you're trying to do? Oh, absolutely. Um, so I've pretty much become that main advocate in her case, um, but I'm very close with her son. Um, he's always there. He lives in Florida now, um, so he can't do much of the footwork up here, but um, he's very, very supportive. Uh, my mom is. My uncles are. Um, there's, I have um, much more resources than they ever had, so it's it's different for them, the things that I can um, find and look into or, you know, just stuff that they weren't able to do before, which became a strain on them. Um, they, they were really drained after so many years of trying, and I kind of get um, the benefit of giving, a you know, an unbiased view on everything and, and what I'm looking at. Um, which has actually uh, been very helpful in, in going forward. Now, based on your research, uh, what was going on in your aunt's life near the time of the murder? Um, so she was a new mom, and her son at the time was eight or nine months old. Um, Matthew was always her first priority. Um, and to keep in mind, she was only 19, so like any other 19-year-old at the time, she, you know, would be out partying, and um, she loved to dance. She loved to laugh. Um, unfortunately, the people that she was hanging out with at the time were just um, very bad people, known known bad people in the neighborhood. Um, but she she was out to have a good time, but her first priority was definitely her son, Matthew. So she got in uh, apparently with the wrong crowd, if you will. Um, but again, as, as you mentioned, she was a 19-year-old, so uh, she was still, uh, well, obviously very young. Um, you, I'm sure, have reviewed the police investigation that was that was conducted. Um, what is your impression of what that investigation consisted of, and uh, was it the, the quality of it? Um, I don't know that there was much of an investigation to begin with. Um, they immediately had her as a missing person, and the juvenile officer in Lowell um, was the one that took over the case, but they didn't take it serious. After a couple weeks, um, no, I'm sorry, it was three weeks later, my family started looking in newspapers and everything, um, trying to see if they found anything because Brenda would never leave her son. Um, you know, like I said before, he was her first priority, so they knew something was up after 24 hours. Um, she, it was unlike her to, to not call. So on Bull's end, they really didn't do much to help there. Um then when she was found in Harvard, um, the case became, well, so when her body was found, immediately Lowell and the state police were alerted. So that was Worcester County. I guess Lowell showed up first uh, to the crime scene. And I'm only noting that because there's been a lot of sketchy things that have happened uh, in between all of it. And then Worcester County. And um, so from there, they, I want to say Lowell took over, and for the first 16 years, they were the ones in charge of the investigation. And so that was Middlesex County and Lowell. And after those 16 years, um, they ended up turning the case back over to Harvard, which also became Worcester County, um, because they said there was no longer any evidence that she was murdered in Lowell, um, which that was after files had been lost. Um, one of the detectives in Lowell took the the case file home and he lost them all. <laughs> um. Um, 
So, so you've dealt with, or not you personally, but the case, the investigation has involved several or multiple agencies. Um, it sounds like, you know, very confusing situation to keep going back and forth between the the handling or the lead investigative agency, and the, how how a file or files, homicide files. It's one thing, you know, depending on policy and procedure, if, if they can be taken out of the office and, and you know, to, uh, to the detective's residence. But to lose them, it just, just to me is almost incomprehensible. Uh, you know, it, it isn't like you're, uh, you're reading a comic book. I mean, it, the, the, these are serious things that, and I just have trouble getting my head around how these, well, after, this type after of thing he, can happen. After the case files were lost, did they try to reconstruct the files or what did they do at that point with trying to gather the information back up or, or did they just go, Oh, well, um, well, so my mom tried for years to, to figure that out. And um, one of the, let me see, one of the detectives at the time um, of her case, he was a, um, he was an undercover Narcan Vice Squad. This was in 1982. Then we're talking about 16 years later. That's exactly right. Um, he's the one who said that they were lost. And my mom had gone back and forth trying to get answers from him. And basically, because uh, she wanted to know what their policy was, too. And he told her it was, um, let me see, he didn't have to discuss it with her and not to come back. Um, Are you kidding me? They lose no, the files they and then they just say go away? Sounds like there's a phone issue. Yeah, oh, Lacey. Oh, good. Okay, would you go repeat that, please? I'm sorry. Oh, no, it's Okay. Um, so basically, you know, my mom was asking what the policy was on having backup files and, um, she still doesn't know because we weren't really able to get an answer there, um, which, you know, this is going back, I want to say maybe 2005 at this point was when she asked again too. Um, and this is when they were saying that they didn't have to discuss the policy and to not call back anymore. She actually also received a letter, I want to say from Lowell or Middlesex County, saying now to direct any questions over to Harvard and Worcester. Then about the time we do that, they bounce it back to the other <laughs> to the other guys. Um, uh, amazing. At any rate, what agencies specifically, or multiple agencies, you you say it's it's back now with the uh, Worcester County. So are they your main agency that you work with or contact if you're looking for information or whatever? Yes, I strictly deal with them now. I actually have had very good experiences with them, and, and they've been phenomenal um, in in getting back to me within a day most of the time or the same day. I, From what I hear, usually that's not the case. Um, and ever since I started to speak with them and work with them, they um, I've never had a victim's advocate, um, which is really nice to be able to speak to the, you know, the detectives directly every time. Um, and, and also, like I said, I, I've heard that it's always been the opposite. So I feel very fortunate in, in which case to, to have that connection. Yes. Uh, that that It's refreshing to hear that type of uh of news because you are right uh, more often than not at least in the cases i'm familiar with the uh if there's a victim's advocate involved it, it seems to slow down the process because like you say you don't have the direct contact with the investigators so i i i think uh, that's definitely a plus if you can you know have that relationship what do you think delilah have you uh have you heard many uh, answers like this? It's usually the other way around. Right. No, I I haven't. <laughs> I, I'm just, I'm speechless. 
obviously. You know, it's strange <laughs> because um, when I first met with them, um, they actually came to my house. I, I didn't want to go to, you know, Worcester. And they stayed over three and a half hours. By the time I had gotten to the bottom of this giant bin of files, they just paused and they said, so is there anything else, Lacey? And they were so calm. And I thought, hold on, <laughs> sitting around a pile of papers. And they, they, they were just so patient with me. And they did say, um, don't be surprised if soon that I hear from a victim's advocate. And I thought, oh, that sounds kind of scary. What is it? Because I, you know, I wasn't, I didn't learn so much um, prior to, to how, you know, dealing with them back and forth. And I, I never heard from one. And I started to realize after looking into other cases that that pretty much was just the middle person to keep you from bugging the detectives is, is the impression that I've got. So the case is currently an open and active investigation then? Uh, yes. I, I actually kind of wish that I requested files before, you know, I guess meeting with the detectives because I think I would have had a better chance. If I have any advice to give to anybody, if their case has been untouched for so many years, <laughs> go to get the files first and then, you know, go to the law enforcement agency. You have your odds are much better. <laughs> now, do you have anyone helping you with this? Like do you have an attorney or a paralegal or any anybody working with you? Um not exactly. I, I have a lot of support from people in different professions, and they've taught me so many things. Um, it's unbelievable. But as for directly an attorney or anything, I I don't have that, no. So since you became involved in the uh, in, in doing your own investigation, what's has been your experience with obtaining records? Have you gotten everything or accessed everything you wanted? Have there, have there been snags that you had to uh, file paperwork or to appeal or anything to get to, or has everything been smooth? Oh, uh, definitely not smooth. Um, so basically, <laughs> yes, no. That that was that's actually been a big pain. Um, when I went to request. The, uh, the death certificate even, I, I went straight to the, well, I, I messaged back with the state medical examiner's office, and they sent me the death certificate, but until after, um, only until after speaking with one of the, the pathologists that actually, you know, did the autopsy, he told me that I only had um, an incomplete death certificate, which I wouldn't know at the time that that was the case because I've never seen one and it's an unsolved case. So when it says pending results, I just assumed that's what that meant. Um, so when I went to go try to find the, the completed one, I, I requested it again from the medical examiner's office. I went to the funeral parlor that, you know, that had her funeral. I requested them from Lowell, uh, the town of Lowell. I requested them from the town of Tingsboro, Harvard, the police station, the city hall, and where she was buried actually doesn't even have a death certificate for her at all, which is absolutely crazy. Um, yes. <laughs> all of these people along the way that I spoke with, for the most part, though, particularly the, um, the funeral director or a couple people at the town hall, um, were very helpful. You know, they also taught me a few things. I didn't know that there was a long death certificate report that would have given me more information, which, again, I was unable to get. Um, I definitely haven't been able to get the autopsy report, and I've tried different ways. Actually, the, um, the I want to say the chief of staff at the state medical examiner's office in Boston uh, is incredibly rude and insensitive. Uh, and they actually didn't tell me that I wasn't receiving the autopsy report. I had, and I was being patient with them. So I waited, you know, I want to say two months because they said there was a lot of files they needed to go through and that they would be sending it. Finally, I called in and they told me I am not getting that. And um, the lady was almost threatening me because I, I said I was told, you know, by Worcester Police that I was able to request it, which didn't necessarily mean I could have it. And, and I found that 
in all the law enforcement uh, agencies, everything is worded a particular way, um, which I have really, you know, learned to pay attention to that. Um, so I felt as though she was going to cause an issue between me and, you know, the relationship that I've built with uh, the state police because um, she said she was going to go directly to their, you know, higher up for telling me that I could request files. And I don't know, it was just absurd. I, I couldn't believe how disrespectful she was. And, and I was very nice with her and calm, you know. Well, and if, you know, it's just a case in point. If she's treating you with that attitude, how is she treating everyone else? I mean, not to diminish your case, but, you know, so many people out there that are what we call fresh victims who are, who are just now experiencing the trauma of of a murder of their loved one and to to go into an office and be treated that way that's not right is there a place uh, where sorry is there a place where a complaint can be filed against this person um i'm i'm not sure to be honest with you but i i want to say maybe five or more times over a a year and a half span I maybe eight times now. I've found different ways to request them, and I guess the laws changed. Uh, I want to say it may have been this year in January, where um, I wish I wish I remember exactly. But the laws did change. We're we're basically we're more likely to get access to the records as before. They didn't have to respond to anything, so I made sure to you know research that they needed to respond to me this time in X amount of days, um, and to give me a, a you know a proper response when they do. Which those are other things I don't think people realize. So you can just kind of set somebody aside as long as you want if they don't word it properly. Uh, Lacey, what what has been the uh, excuse or the reason that you can't have the uh, fully completed death certificate and that you can't get the autopsy information? Did, did they tell you why? Um, well, so the medical examiner's office told me that it's under um, Worcester's, Worcester D's, um jurisdiction or they, you know, I would have to go through them since it's an open, active investigation that they aren't able to give it to me. And when I spoke to Worcester, I understood that the idea is so that they can preserve any information so that they can later, it will hold up in court. Um, but at the same point, I, I've been, you know, the strongest advocate in her case. So any bit of information helps me move things forward. Um, but basically that that's where they stood. I understand, but at the same point, I don't. <laughs> where it's it's going on so here. When when you talk to the uh, to the Worcester uh, DA's office, who you've uh, have a good relationship with, did they support the uh, medical examiner in this that those records should not be released? Um. They're very good at how they word things. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh huh. Again, it, it's definitely about listening carefully to what they're saying and how they're saying it. Um, they they told me, you know, basically they're they're on our side and um, things like that. But again, just for court purposes later on. And and I also, particularly in my aunt's case, I think because where evidence and files have been lost. I think that they're kind of trying to hold on uh, to those, you know, those other things, um, like the file, like the autopsy report. And, and I don't understand about the death certificate. I, the completed one, I'm starting to think that they don't even have it to, at all. And that was the impression that I got. Well, the, yeah, it's, uh, you know, you, you're dealing with the two different entities here, the Worcester DA and then with the medical examiner's office. And it, it seems like a very awkward situation to me. In other words, uh, the the medical examiner cites the open investigation with the DA and the DA, like you say, is very uh, 
careful with their wording so you don't really know whether they are fully supporting the medical examiner's position or what uh, uh, do you find yourself somewhat confused with this or no i'm 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 a little confused um i have the more i i learn i, I start to understand it but it definitely is overwhelming and if you know, if it was my, my sister or somebody that I knew or, you know, even like Delilah said, if it was something very recent, it that would just be devastating. I don't know that I would be able to kind of focus in on that and figure out what the proper thing to do there, you know, like to continually push on it and to have to, um, you know, read different laws to make sure you incorporate that into your, you know, letters or emails to them. Um, otherwise, it's it's ineffective. Why would why would somebody know that? It's it's not like they wanted to be in the position they're in, you know. Yeah, and you could be correct. The fact that there have been records lost and so forth, maybe they're treating this a little bit different. But Delilah, what do you think? Or, uh, do you think that's a reason, possibly, that they don't want to come up uh, with the information? I do. I think it's a, another case of CYA. It, it, you know, you you have a case where records are lost. Nobody wants to own up to it, and and we see this all the time that when there's mistakes made, that often there's a way that people cover it up within different agencies, and to get to the bottom of it, and especially after thirty some years, is going to be really difficult because. You're peeling back layers and layers of that onion, but I'm still, I'm still just really enraged at the way this person treated you. I just, that is just so inappropriate, so inappropriate. And I, I really hope you can find a way to report it and and so that it doesn't happen to you again and it doesn't happen to someone else. Someone needs to be replaced. I, I agree. I. I asked when I was speaking to Worcester about it. Um, they said, you know, it is. A, I, I could tell that they didn't have the friendliest, you know, relationship back and forth in, in what they what they do. Um, but they said, you know, it is. It is really stressful. There's a lot of stuff over there. And I'm thinking, sure, it is stressful. But you are in the position you are in. And there's nothing there's more stressful than losing your loved one to murder. There's right. nothing. And they they need to understand that and be more understanding of the victims, the surviving victims that are just trying to get an answer. They're not threatening your job. They're not threatening you as a person. And there's no reason to be rude. Absolutely. I agree. It's, uh, and let me comment here that in, in this particular case, you're, primary issues with the uh, medical examiner, but we hear all the time, you know, that the agencies, including in most cases the police agency that's investigating, um, where they don't return phone calls, where when they do return phone calls, they're they're rude or they give you the thing, you know, don't bother to call back, don't call us, we'll call you. And... Uh, it, it, it's certainly very frustrating, and uh, you know if uh, if an appliance store or something had uh, or Sears or whatever had the customer service that some of these governmental agencies have, uh, heads would roll very quickly because. Uh, well, not only that, Denny. If you're going to Sears and you don't like their customer service, you can go to another store. With the situation yeah. like this, you don't have a choice. You're stuck dealing with whoever you're dealing with. Right, right. That's true. Very true. And I don't know how I don't know how it works in Massachusetts, but I want to say that in New York, when you find when someone finds a case where the handling police agency has not done its job or appears not to have done its job, and there are a lot of questions about how the investigation was conducted, uh, lack of interviews, that type of thing. Um, you can't just go to the next agency. In other words, 
if it's a county case, then the state police would be the next agency up the food chain, and in fact, the ultimate agency in New York State. They have jurisdiction everywhere. Um, but they won't, unless you can prove actual malfeasance, but if, if it's incompetence or laziness or that type of thing, um, unless they're invited in by the county agency or the district attorney from that county, unless they're invited in to... Uh, to participate in the investigation, they won't just do it. In other words, the the uh, survivor can't call the state police and say, "Hey, look, the county botched this investigation. Why don't you guys take a look at it?" They will say, "Well, we'd be glad to help if if the county gives us a a call or writes us a letter and asks us to." Uh, to assist or to take over the case. Very, very frustrating. Oh, I'm sure. Then you're just getting bounced back and forth again. Exactly. I looks like we may have a caller on the line. Are you open to taking a question? Sure, absolutely. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. I, I have a question. Is there any DNA evidence in this case? And if there isn't, are there any efforts underway <clears throat> to obtain DNA? Um, yes. Um, we're actually trying to raise money now for exhumation. Um, I, I think actually the state police are really interested in having me do that. Um, they've been kind of silent about it, but I think they're secretly rooting for it um, and probably something to do with the, the evidence being missing and filed. Do you, do you think in uh, in response uh, further response to that question that the t in the 36 years that there's new technology that you think that the next humation may uh, may be able to utilize that new technology to come up with some answers? Oh, 100 percent, yes. Um, I actually met with the the AD a couple. No, let me see, two ADAs and. Um, Maybe there was three there actually, and um, the detectives. And I was telling them that I wanted to do this, and, and basically I did get the okay on it. But one of them thought that it would be more beneficial to offer a reward. Um, and they said, you know, medical examiners they they clip the nails, and also at the funeral they would you know scrub the body and things like that. But I told them, you know, you would know that there was a closed casket if you read further into it. Um, so I, there was no funeral, uh, you know, she wasn't, her body wasn't being cleaned in that sense. And I'm not sure that the, um, the, the guys who did the autopsy, it's, I'm sure there's something left there basically is what I'm saying. Um, if anybody, my aunt was pretty feisty and she was small, but she definitely would have fought back um, for sure. Um, caller, thank you very much for the question. Um, uh, to follow up on that, the police agencies lost the file. Yes. DNA um, with the new technology may may be able to, to come up with some answers. I'm just wondering, as part of the investigation, would it be uh, logical that the uh, police agencies or the DA's office or whatever would pay for the exhumation. Why is it up to you to do it? Um, I think that has something to do with um, funding and, and priority and what is um, more likely to be solved. I think that's how things are prioritized. So I, I don't really know, you know, how much funds they have or, or how that works out, but it, it's, they're not certain that they're going to get DNA, so it doesn't seem probably as worthwhile to them for my aunt's case to be put forward. Um, so they would rather spend whatever their resources are uh, and what do we call it, a fresh, a fresh victim, um, somebody where they feel they have a better shot at obtaining evidence and getting an arrest. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I also wanted to mention, though, um, the GoFundMe page that I have. It's um, GoFundMe 
facebook.com slash voice for Brenda. Um, I just wanted to yes, throw that out. So people can contribute then to the uh, the fund to do the examination. Right, right. And and it's going to happen uh, this week sometime. Any, uh, if you don't mind me asking, what, what kind of money are we talking? How much do you have to pay or raise to get this done? Um, so I've done a lot of research online, and so it's kind of like a, you know, a guess. But between the excavators, um, I believe I'd be needing a, a permit from the Board of Health, uh, potentially a court order, but I don't think that'll be the case. Um, the pathologist um, replacing the casket, um, things like that. Now, I averaged, let me see, $7,000 if her uh, remains were to be transported um, to a facility for the um, to do another autopsy. But then there's also, if they do it at the grave, that would be different. So just between, I guess, I'm, I'm thinking between 4000 to 7000 depending on, you know, what they're able to do there. Um, but like, like I said, the way I you know, put that together was researching different things online. It's, you know, if there's, you have to contact all these different places. It's not just something that's set up for you. <laughs> yeah, it, so doesn't you would have to get your own pathologist too, then you say you'd have to hire someone to, to do the autopsy. Right, and the excavators, and there's a lot to it. Actually, um, Jerry Hood has been very helpful to me in, um, you know, Teresa Corley's sister, in kind of giving me a rundown of how things worked on that end for her. Um, but she's great, so I definitely appreciate appreciate her. Well, Lacey, Absolutely. do you have anyone working with you, helping you, like a private investigator, or um, I think you said the victim's advocate really wasn't, a lot of help in this direction for you, but is there is there someone that that's out there for you that is is able to push this a little further in the right direction? Um, it's funny actually. I had a, what was I can't even think of his name right now. A very well known uh, private investigator out of Boston who was going to do it pro bono, but once I started talking to him, he told me that I already did everything he would have done. Um, so it pretty much, you know, getting the case open, finding the information, getting uh, the attention of the law enforcement, um, getting people to pay attention to it, finding all the little details. I, I pretty much have covered all this on my own. And I've met people that, you know, are retired officers and people that work in, I mean, various positions that have taught me so much that I, I've kind of been handling it all myself and, and I think fairly well. <laughs> Obviously. Kind of so is, there, is there any, like, a cold case task force or anything like that in the community that you could use? Um, online, there's different groups and things like that, but not, not exactly. I mean... Those things cost a lot of money too, depending. Um, in a lot of bigger cities, there will be, you know, maybe retired detectives or, or whatever, a group of people who that's what they do. And they usually they volunteer their time or sometimes they may be paid positions, but that's what they do is, you know, go over these cold cases and, and kind of put a new set of eyes on them and see if there's any information that either wasn't uncovered or maybe wasn't looked into far enough. Now, you know, being that it's so old, I don't know, you know, what direction, if they did have some evidence, I'm sure people that were possibly involved may have moved on or, or passed on either one. But, um, yeah, my thought was perhaps a, I would think in in Boston there would be something like that, wouldn't you, Denny? I would. You know, as, as you were talking, um, Lacey, I'd, I'd encourage you to go to the Resources for Survivors page. I don't know if you've been there yet or not, but there are several groups listed. Some there are some are victims advocacy groups, but they 
will give you it free, uh, you know, advice uh, or act on your behalf if you want to, as kind of an intermediary with different uh, governmental agencies. And we just added one that uh, that does exactly what Delilah was talking about. There are a bunch of retired uh, the police officers and prosecutors and so forth. And at no charge to the family, uh, they will look at look at these cold cases. So, if you want to browse that website, you you know it doesn't hurt anything, and you may find uh, find someone you can contact that could give you a hand uh, and give you advice, you know, about the exhumation and and different things. So, I'd encourage if you get a chance to go to the website and uh, check these. Uh, different organizations out and see what you think and their contact information is is there on their website. Sure. No, definitely. I'd definitely like to check that out. And actually, my, my next step, I, you know, I've been working on raising the funds for the explanation, but I've kind of set aside a little time because there, I don't know if you have heard the Cold Traces podcast with Christina Norland. Um, and she did their first season on on Teresa Corley. Well, no, I haven't heard that. No, oh, she did such a great job. Um, it's amazing, and it reached a lot of people. And actually, this year the third series is going to be on my aunt. It's going to be on uh, Brenda's case. So the the point to me bringing this up is um, basically that's going to get a lot of more attention to a lot of people. Um, which is even if it will be, you know, to, if somebody decides uh, that they want to help further investigate, this would be a better way for them to get an idea of my aunt's case much better than just a, you know, a bunch of articles or, or what I could say because it will take them, you know, step by step through her case. But that's very interesting and a very positive development. Now, did you contact her? Did she contact you? How did this come about? Um, I So after listening to um, Teresa, the first season on Teresa Corley, I, I believe I reached out to her, and um, she's been such a, a great victim's advocate. And um, so, you know, she did, I think she did her second season, and the third, she kind of, um, connects through people, like referred almost, and, and she encourages people to contact her, and she does this um, on her own. She produces it. She posts it. She's unbelievable. Um, so basically just in talking back and forth. Um, I'd, what uh, If you're willing, I'd, I'd love to have you uh, post her information uh, on the uh, Transparency Project uh, Facebook page, if uh, so, the other members can can take a look. Would oh, that definitely. be something you? Okay, that that's that would be great. Uh, we're running out of time very quickly here. Uh, what do you foresee now as the future of the investigation? What are your What are your thoughts? Um. I, I honestly believe uh, once we get the DNA that I am very, I'm 100% confident will happen, um, we'll be able to proceed forward. And I have no doubt that there is DNA there, which will give us the evidence uh, that we need, um, which will then, you know, allow the detectives to have more to work with and, and have more of a priority in my aunt's case. Okay, well, we certainly wish you the best of luck, and hopefully you'll uh, let us know if there's any developments we can update uh, the case. And, Lacey, thanks so much for sharing Brenda's story with us. And, again, we would love to update the case, as, as thing, especially the DNA stuff. So please keep us up to date. And our next broadcast will be tomorrow, May 2nd, when we'll discuss Molly's Law with Larry Young. Please join us. Thanks again, Lacey. Thank you, Danny. Thank you, Delilah. Thank you, Lacey, for taking your time to be with us today. It it was a pleasure.